check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Welcome one and welcome all to episode 11. Appreciate you joining us wherever you are. Most important, I hope that you are healthy as our theme over the next hour will be good health. This is a toast to the A-Town presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andre Aldrich. Thrilled that our Atlanta Hawks are sporting the fourth best record in the Eastern Conference after completing a four-game homestand that saw them notch three victories. More on that in a moment. First, let's take care of just a little bit of business. Basketball teams are entering the final month of the regular season as they gear up for the playoffs. While some teams are locks to make the playoffs, others are still fighting for their opportunity to chase the trophy this summer. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting you in the center of the action with a chance to turn $1 into $100 in free bets. Turning $1 into $100 is simple. Pick any basketball team to win their next game, and if during that game the team of your choosing hits a three, you bring home $100 in free bets. That's 100 to 1 odds on the team of your choosing to hit a three. They don't even need to win. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code TBPN when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free bets if the basketball team of your choosing hits a three. That's code TBPN to turn $1 into $100 in free bets for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-W-I-T-H-I-T. Now back to our team. Following that long Western Conference road trip, the Hawks returned home to post wins over the Warriors, sweeping the season series there, the Pelicans, getting taken to the woodshed by Memphis 131-113, but following that up with a sensational comeback victory against the Bulls, overcoming a 50-point explosion by Zach Levine in the process. So they wrapped up the work week and the homestand with a 3-1 and record. I'm going to talk a little more about the Bulls game momentarily, but first, let's shift the focus to staying healthy. And a good time to remind you that my special guest coming up later spent two decades making sure athletes in both Chicago's and Atlanta's locker room maintain the best health possible. Really looking forward to having a great conversation and behind the curtains talk with Wally Blaze. For now, though, let's talk about health in general. For a team that hasn't reached the playoffs in three years, sitting in fourth place at this point of the season would be an accomplishment under any circumstance. But factually, With how shorthanded the Hawks are, it's damn impressive. The biggest recent blow was losing John Collins while in Phoenix on the long road trip out west. The left ankle injury he suffered had his return status undetermined. He'll be reevaluated this week. Tony Snell suffered a right ankle injury during the Bulls game, and he'll miss a few games. Add them to the already sidelined DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, and others, and you get my drift. So I bring all that up, not for excuses, Ours is a no-excuses locker room, but the awareness of how sports science factors in to all the games we love to watch. It cannot be overstated. And to that end, the Hawks have a huge positive in who is running that part of their operation. The current title for Chelsea Lane is Vice President of Athletic Performance and Sports Medicine, and that title still might be selling short her importance. The Hawks hired Chelsea away from Golden State in August of 2018. 
And if you'd like to know about her importance to the Warriors championships, just ask any player that was there. And I won't read any Golden State quotes here now. Just know that they are numerous. So the work that Chelsea, Hawks head trainer Scotty Parker, and the rest of her staff puts in is top notch. I've witnessed it firsthand. Now, I'm going to repeat myself on this, but as fans, our access to behind-the-scenes media and what goes on in most sports is at a level never seen before. Used to be that NFL Films was the only place you got a little taste of behind-the-scenes football, and the little you got was glorious. And the balance for team doctors and those in charge of health has always been a balancing act, for lack of a better term there. But the added exposure over the years of cameras has definitely made things better for the athlete. I think way back to one exchange between the great Bill Parcells and New England Patriots team doctor as the doctor was updating him while walking on the sideline with Parcells. And the conversation was about a kicker. The doctor says he'll be all right, but he's not at top form. Parcells responds with a salty what? The doctor goes, he'll be able to play. He's just not in top form. That's all. And without missing a beat, Parcells tells the doctor, well, he don't need to play, doc. All he's got to do is kick. And he wasn't smiling and he wasn't trying to be funny. He was dead ass serious. Or let's fast forward a generation. Shift to soccer, the great Amazon sports franchise, all or nothing. And the year they spent with Tottenham Hotspur. Episode six with an awesome scene concerning a potential injury to their great South Korean star, Young Min Son, or Sonny as they call him. The head of their sports medicine program tells head coach Jose Mourinho that they have to take a precautionary MRI on Son's elbow. Mourinho basically says, what if the MRI is bad? Doctor replies, that depends. Mourinho adds, Son doesn't even want an MRI. Medical chief says, we still need the MRI. Mourinho reply, Mourinho's reply is, what if the MRI shows the bone is bad? And the medical chief says, it depends on what the MRI shows. And Marino responds, he has to play and walks off. Now, in real life, the MRI was bad and Son was sidelined for a while. But just think back to the times not long ago where a camera would never be around to record that scene. And earlier I said balancing act, but really it's the pressure for the medical side of the operation in dealing with a coach or anyone else that has a different incentive other than the player's best interest. Just something that if you're listening to my voice now, I hope you always can keep in your mind when watching or enjoying and rooting for your favorite teams and athletes. Money is always the biggest story, but the importance of health is truly second to none even in a no-excuses locker room. So back to our team, and I touched on the more serious injuries of concern earlier, and with that thought, for an early trip to Charlotte on Sunday, also no Trey Young due to a left calf contusion, and no Danilo Gallinari because of a sore right foot. And still, the Hawks rallied from a 10-point deficit in the fourth quarter to beat the Hornets 105-101. Bogdan Bogdanovich picked up the scoring load with 32 points, he also got down on the ground to grab a crucial loose ball in the final minute of play. Steady Clint Capella had 20 points to go along with 15 rebounds. And Brandon Goodwin, starting in place of Trey Young, had 17 points and 8 assists. Charlotte 
had not lost a game all season in which they led heading into the fourth quarter. They were 22-0 with that number. So impressive, impressive job by everyone in Charlotte. Let's take it back to the Friday night win that closed out the homestand against the Bulls. One of the most impressive wins of the season for Atlanta. Sure, Zach Levine was busting us up with 39 first-half points on the way to his 50-piece. Trey was in it to win it too. 42 points, 9 assists, and 8 rebounds in the contest for Ice Trey. Gallinari was an absolute assassin in the fourth quarter, hitting clutch three-pointer after clutch three-pointer on his way to 20 points. Hawks trail by a bad 13 points at halftime. But listen to some choice words from Nate McMillan, and they were the right words. Atlanta outscored Chicago 33-18 to in the third quarter. It was still anybody's ballgame, though. Bulls up 101-99 with six minutes to play, but a Gallinari three made it 102-101 Atlanta. Then Trey sandwiched great assists to Clint Capella for short work with another Gallinari three. And even shorthanded, the Hawks are trying to jump on the all-we-do-is-win-win-win train. And here in the A-Town, we are all good with all of that. Now let's get ready to spend a good chunk of time with someone that has lived his adult life in the business of keeping athletes healthy. Interesting that the Hawks wrapped up their four-game homestand against the Bulls because my special guest joining us in a few minutes spent many years in the locker room of his hometown Chicago Bulls before bringing his expertise to his current hometown and the Hawks locker room for a decade and a half. His journey has been fascinating, and I'm sure he'll have some possible advice for anyone out there about getting into the sports train and sports science business. So my good friend Wally Blaze will be joining us here on a toast to the A-Town in about three minutes. A quick reminder now that the Hawks will be in Tampa to take on Toronto Tuesday night and in their work week back here in Atlanta with a Thursday night affair against the Milwaukee Bucks. All right, as we continue on now with episode number 11 of A Toast to the A-Town, I know you're already sensing and understanding unless you hit the slider button and just slid past the segment one part. And I know you didn't do that because that would offend me, uh, that we're getting closer to the part that everybody says is the best part of the podcast. And that's the part when we kind of bring in the invited guests and 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 and, and share some love with, with them, right? But um, again, kind of the, the theme the theme of this this episode really is uh, health and again for for John Collins getting injured while the Hawks were out on that long road trip uh, out there in Phoenix and uh, no definitive word on when he's going to get back. Um, I don't play a doctor on TV. I don't pretend to be a doctor, but I do pretend to be a media guy. So I think one of the things that we've all kind of understood and, and kind of watched as the media gets a better chance to get behind the scenes here over the last few years and, and uh, no big news there, but I think one of the things we've all start to understand even more so um, is the fact that health and those who help facilitate that and keep guys healthy uh, is probably the most important thing. And most important thing and the most overlooked thing outside of sports uh, for all of us as consumers or fans of teams. And so if you want to think at some of the great media things that are are, are doing to kind of expose that, um, for the NFL, you think about hard knocks. And as long as hard knocks has been around and to be able to go behind the scenes, really the fly on the wall, unfiltered look. Uh, Amazon or, or their prime video platform, uh, they have that great series called All or Nothing. Now that started back in 2015 
uh, with the Arizona Cardinals as far as the NFL is, is concerned. So uh, pretty much every year since until last year, they've had an NFL team uh, on that platform to kind of do that. And they've really done a great job uh, with European soccer. So uh, the all or nothing with the um, um, uh, Manchester City squad and Pep Guardiola, uh, that's just phenomenal. And then the one that they did with Tottenham Hotspur and Jose Marino and everything behind the scenes. I think one of the things that you completely understand, though, uh, if you didn't know before, is the importance of the people behind the scenes that keep the athletes healthy, keep the athletes uh, performing at a high level. And so with that being the case, we're going to bring in somebody that has kind of uh, had that be a big part of his life. Uh, but of course, having fun and, and and doing that with a smile is also a part of it too. So for 15 years, my next guest was a head trainer for the athlete, for the Atlanta Hawks. Of course, he'd be on the toast to the A-Town. But before that, he was the assistant uh, trainer for the Chicago Bulls for four years. And, uh, um, I always say my guests really need no introduction and, and you have, all have seen the face and uh, maybe you don't know the name, but uh, anybody in the Midwest obviously does. And a lot of folks that follow the Hawks definitely do. So as I bring in my brother from another mother, I say hello to Wally Blaze. And Wally, thanks for joining us here on the Toast to the A-Town, man. Thanks, Andre. It's awesome to be here, buddy. I appreciate you inviting me on. So I just, and I, and I hope I didn't uh, ramble through that too too poorly, but obviously um, everything evolves. You know, the media has evolved, uh, 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 sports science has evolved, but for you, did I kind of explain that and maybe put you guys where you need to be, where you already know that you're at? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, technology, social media, and the media in general, and the ability to have access to these teams has really shined a light on what has been done in the background for, for decades. You know, there were so many, you know, forefathers that came before us. The great Joe tool with the Atlanta Hawks mm -hmm. is the founding father of all athletic trainers, especially in the NBA and really for all pro sports, you know, there wouldn't be the uh, NBA TA, the P bats, the P bats, or even the uh, major league soccer uh, mm -hmm. professional athletic trainer society. It, it all was started by Joe tool from the Atlanta Hawks. So, you know, it's nice that my brothers out there that are still working in my peers, even at the collegiate level, high school level are starting to get recognition. Uh, and it was just on the heels of March being athletic training month. So it's nice you to have me on and, uh, and a nod tip of the cap to everybody out there that's in the trenches behind the scenes. You know, Wally, and uh, one of the things you bring up the great Joel tool and it's, it's funny because um, it's a hard job and I'll need you to, pump yourself up. It's just, it just is. It's, it's always been a hard job and it's going to continue to be a hard job. And I would, I would think that a healthy dose of ego is involved with, with everybody. Well, a couple of years ago, Joel too comes down the Hawks hallway before one of the games. And you know, the way security is now and everything, all the security guys don't know. And one of the security guys was about to jump on, Hey, you can, Hey, you can't help. And for me being the nerd I am, and of course being behind the scenes, what I'm supposed to know, I know this is, you know, this is athletic Moses, <laughs> you know? So I run up and just to kind of tell the guy, and I, I don't have that kind of status, but just to go, Hey man, no, no, no. He's, he's, whether somebody has to get him a pass or, or something, he's, he belongs here. And Joe being Joe, wasn't even offended, wasn't bothered or anything at all. Is, is, is that just a part of his personality he always had? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, Joe comes from an era where he not only took care of the health of your Dominique Wilkins and your Moses Malones and your Pete Maraviches, but he also had to wash their jerseys for him. He had to clean, do the laundry. He had to make sure the buses got there. He had to make sure Lenny Wilkins and all the other coaches that came, Mike Fratello's, had their room at their hotel. And, you know, the planes back then, there was no charter plane where a bus pulls up, you walk up a staircase, and somebody's handing you a hot towel. You got coach seats. And maybe three out of the 10 athletes got first class. So you had a handover, you know, to your Dominiques and your Moses. They got the first class and your Spud Webbs might be in the back because they were smaller, you know. So that's Joe, you know, egoless, but just ever caring and just a fantastic job for everything he did. And, you know, that's that's part of it. You know how it is that people don't know who the athletic trainers are. Some some do. You're diehard fans. You know, our season ticket holders that sat around by our bench. You know, some of the best season ticket holders in all of pro sports are Atlanta Hawks season ticket holders. I just loved getting to know them. And over the years, we all knew each other and they knew who I was. But there were times I get stopped going back, running to the locker room, trying to help an injured player and have security wrestle you. You know, that happened to me in Dallas. I, oh. I had to have, you know, our team security come and get me because I was held up, not even being able to go help my player. So it's, you know, they're doing their job, as you, as we've all seen. And But, yeah, somebody like Joe, that wouldn't phase him at all. He'd just go buy a Coke and maybe sit in the upper deck. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, too, that um, I know definitely for baseball, a generation ago, you know, that trainer, it was trainer slash traveling secretary. and Fans didn't really understand the traveling secretary part of that job was just as intense because of everything you just described. And you didn't describe all the responsibilities that went with it then. Oh, yeah. You know, when I started with the Hawks that we were still I would thank God I didn't have to do the laundry, but I was still the traveling secretary. You know, and that's it doesn't sound hard to people like, oh, well, you know, you go on, you know, Wikipedia or Expedia and you book a bunch of rooms and you're all set. That's not how it works. It's also they don't realize you're playing a game in Utah. And now your plane is stuck in Denver because of a snowstorm and they're trying to get a hold of you, but you're on the bench. So you, you know, your cell phone's ringing. You got to figure out a way to answer it and then figure out how to find 35 hotel rooms that night because you're stuck. You're not leaving Salt Lake city, even though everybody's checked out. Mm -hmm. When I say 35 hotel rooms, people think there's not 35 guys on the team. Well, the traveling secretary that, you know, the trainer takes care of the guys like you and yes, Steve sir. Pullman and Bob Rathburn's and Dominique's room and the GM's room and the, the crew that goes with the TV crew in the back there, you know, your Gretchen's and those, you know, those folks. So it's, it's everybody's taken care of, you know, I, I was happy as hell to hand it over to Zach Walsh and let him handle that. <laughs> who, who, who in my estimation is the best equipment man in the entire NBA. But again, part of being his responsibilities is everything you just said. One of the things I got to point out to, and um, when you get here uh, and Mike Woodson is the head coach of the Hawks. So Mike Woodson is going to be the head coach at his alma mater, the university of Indiana or Indiana university, excuse me. I went to a Pac-10 party school, so I get it. But I'm a little I know he's thrilled happy for him to get the job. I'm disappointed because uh, that was my plug to get on the uh, uh, country club of the south to, to golf. And uh, Mike <laughs> Woodson has to be the most giving person in all of sports. Sports, just period. Just it isn't that, hey, I like Andre because he says nice things about you or this. If you're human and you're around Mike Woodson, he's going to pick up the tab. He's going to ask if your family's OK and he's going to do. All, was was that him from the moment you met him? 
Yeah, you know, it, interestingly, it, my time with the Hawks is uh, almost a uh, – uh, uh, a walking tribute to survival. You know, I started here, Lon Kruger hired me and, you know, congratulations to Lon on uh, finally retiring. It, it, great, great man. You know, I was lucky to have somebody like him. And then Terry Stotts took over for Lon and another fantastic human, you know, right out of the gate. You know, I, I got lucky with head coaches, you know, Phil mm-hmm. Jackson with the Bulls, then Tim Floyd, another great person, mm-hmm. Lon, Terry, and then to bring in Mike Woodson, and you're thinking, okay, it's, it's not going to keep going. And it did. You know, Woody is, you know, fantastic. I mean, you probably know this, not a lot of people. When we flew on the plane, there's a player section, there's a coach's section, and then in the back is the rest of us, me, you, the media, my assistant, Pete Radulovic. Mm-hmm. Well, Woody likes to talk a little trash. And him and Billy Knight at the time, the GM, thought they were the best Tonk players in the world. <laughs> and they watched me and Pete play Tonk on our laps and they, they, you know, no racial jokes aside. They said, there's no way you two white boys can play Tom. <laughs> so they invited us up into the coaches section. And from that day on, we sat in the middle section with Woody and Billy Knight and played Tonk nonstop every trip for the entire couple seasons that we were all together. And, you know, and that was Woody. We, he wasn't the coach at the time. He would talk smack and we just had a great time. You know, he, from the day my daughter was born, I think Woody was the head coach at the time. He's always grabbed her, held her, said, how's my daughter doing? She just actually sent him a text a couple days ago, Coach Woody, congratulating him and going back home and getting the IU. You know, and he was just thrilled as heck to get that from her. You know, and that's just how he is. You know, he like you said, pick up a tab, mm-hmm. you know, buy you dinner, ask how your family's doing, all the way around. You know, and good things happen to good people, Andre. You know yeah, that. Ab- absolutely. You know what? Uh, when you talk about big, big guys, and and obviously uh, the late commissioner, David Stern, uh, you know, there's going to be no middle ground on him because of the the powerful position he had. But I, I got to tell you, and working for NBA E for the number of years that I did, um, there was one behind-the-scenes situation where guys just happened to be talking about Tonk. And they kind of talked over the commissioner like he didn't know, you know, or like you, you want, but we're, we're, you know, the brothers are talking about, and he just turns and goes like, I was in, I was in South Africa playing Tonk with everybody on, tri- on our team, on our, on our trip. And I kicked their ass. So I know all about Tonk. Thank you very much. And for me, it's just one of those moments like, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in my life. I'm never going to forget this moment right then because he was dead ass serious, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Listen, you can talk a lot of smack. Don't talk about somebody's tongue game, okay? No, not at all. Not at all. So, Wally, um, let's uh, – we're going to go – we're going to go backwards first, okay? So, we – obviously, your Atlanta, you, Atlanta credentials are, are, are beyond legit, and that's on levels. So, you're one of the few people that has had a film about them, and, 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 and sure, you're a co-star of it, but, uh, folks – I got to tell you, uh, I touched on it in segment one, but again, if you have access to the ESPN app, I know we have a few fans that listen to the podcast up in Canada, and I'm not sure exactly how the, I know they have the internet up there, okay, but I just, I know things get blocked, but again, if you got access to the ESPN app, you go onto their page that has the 30 for 30s, and you go and you watch the amazing adventures of Wally and the Worm, okay? Many of you probably have already seen it, but if you haven't, that's 15 minutes of your life you're going to thank me for, okay? So um, you might want to do that. 
and come back and listen to the rest of this uh, 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 later because it's only 15 minutes. But the reason I bring you back, because you're a Chicago kid, Wally, and that first job I want to get you to is as an assistant trainer for the Chicago Bulls. So first off, before we even get to the worm, how did you get the job? Uh, fantastic story. You know, I, I'm actually, it's a story I'm more proud of than anything. And I tell it a lot to young professionals, especially kids that are coming up mm -hmm. in high school and college, wanting to get into athletic training and get into pro sports. Because just like we talked about the glamor of having to be the traveling secretary and wash jerseys and socks, it, it, you don't just walk in and somebody hands you uh, a roll of tape and say, tape Michael Jordan's ankles. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, quite honestly, you're right. I grew up in Chicago on the north side, diehard Chicago fan. You guys all know that. My Bears, Hawks, Cubs, and the Bulls. And he graduated from uh, college, got a job working in arena football. And this is arena football in 1993 when it was like the movie Major League. It, we, we had players coming out of prison joining the team you know everybody on the team was somebody that got messed over by an agent or got caught on the last day and you knew that wasn't the truth these guys right. were just most of them bad i mean arch Sleister was our quarterback okay uh -huh. yeah so i i finished that job making 150 dollars a week and the team folded at the end of the season i came back home thinking oh yeah i'll just get in the pro sports and long story short i called every team in chicago thinking i could get in and it didn't happen. And the Bulls had just won their third championship. You know, they beat the Suns. And I just happened to catch their head trainer, Chip Schaefer, in the office on an odd off day because it was, you know, the end of summer. And he answered the phone. And because there was no Internet back then. These kids don't know that there was a phone book. I had opened the phone book, find a number to the Chicago Bulls and call and talk my way into different extensions. Meet me, you know, get me to this guy. Got down to Chip Schaefer's office, answered the phone. There was no caller ID. He didn't know who was calling, so he had to answer it. Turns out it was me. We kind of talked together. He said, thanks, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. And we hung up. And then I got this idea in my head. NFL teams bring in kids for training camp to help out because they have extra players. So I knew he had to be in the office. I immediately called him right back. And he answered again, and it was me again. And I'm sure he was like, I shouldn't answer the phone. <laughs> and I just said, hey, buddy, you know, you, you, you're going to have to bring extra guys to training camp. Maybe I could just come and help. And he said, you know what? You sound like a nice kid. At the very least, why don't you come up to the Birdo Center and I'll show you around and, you know, just maybe give you some advice. And I said, OK. And I went up there. We met and we hit it off instantly, just like friends. It was like a big brother, little brother thing. He said, you know, you sound like a nice guy. Let me ask Jerry and Phil if you can at least observe the first three days of training camp. Because back then, training camp was like four days long. Then you mm -hmm. played a preseason game and you kept going. Mm -hmm. And I did. Um Two days before I showed up, Michael retired for the first time. So my friends were all laughing at me, like, have fun. Got there, and the guys were great. I, you know, I had never been to a live game. And so I saw uh, Bill Wennington and Steve Kerr, and I thought they were John Paxson and Will Purdue because I saw a tall white guy and a short white guy. That's how little I kind of knew, like, in, in person. So the guys loved having me around because it was just one more person to help. You know, Scotty and Horace were like huge and just saying, Chip, let them hang around. So after my four days were up, I just kept coming. And I don't know if they didn't have the heart to tell me not to show up or it was over. And I just came. And then they said, uh, you want to be a ball boy at the home game. So, yeah, I know I was, I'm listed as four years working for the Bulls, but it was really seven because of the first three. I just worked the visiting locker room as a ball boy at the old Chicago stadium. Wow. And then I would run over and help chip. And long story short of that, I never left. I just kept coming. And then finally one day I got, 
I was traveling with the team at one point and getting per diem, but I wasn't a, an employee. Wow. I got offered a job by the Chicago Bears to come do a training camp and then be a, a, a seasonal uh, intern. Mm-hmm. And I was accepting it. And the guys on the team were actually congratulating me because they knew that was my dream job. And Jerry Krause said, why, why, are you, why are you leaving? You don't like working for us. I said, Jerry, I love working for you, but I live in my parents' basement and you don't pay me. He said, what do you mean we don't, we don't pay you? I said, no. I said, I'm not an employee. And he said, well, if you were an employee, would you stay? And I said, wow, yeah, I guess I would. And they offered me $25,000 a year. That was my salary. Wow. And I thought I was the richest guy in the world. And it took about three years of working for free. Mm-hmm that to happen. So that's how I got in. So when, you know, I, when I, when I have my young trainers that came and worked underneath me, there was nothing I ever asked them to do that I didn't do. And I did 10 times over. And, you know, I, I think I was in the end rewarded handsomely because that 25,000 turned into a lifetime of memories. Like you're saying with, you know, getting in with that last dance, you know, those final three championships. I mean, you're a kid and you see it on TV, people pouring champagne on each other's head to actually be in the room. And one of the people pouring champagne on somebody, right. Including like the greatest team ever. Mm -hmm. That was weird. That's fun. that's phenomenal, man. And I, I, I think of, you know, it's about that stick to itiveness, right. And just, you know, we're going to, I'm not going to take no for answer, but it's not going to be from not trying if I get a no. And I, and I realize things change generationally, somewhat similar, not at the epic level of you, though. Uh, you know, while in college, I used to go to uh, one of the black radio stations in Los Angeles. 1580 K-Day uh, uh, was 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 the number one. Yeah, we're talking about the AM kids. And, and that's but anyway, um, I, I K-Day was too big in my mind because that was just the shit. So their competitor was called the cat. And I just started going to the overnight shift of the cat befriended the DJ there kind of hanging out. And so while I had to have a job while I was in college um, and I didn't really have uh, internships, that was kind of my internship because I was just showing up there three nights a week, similar to you, but I didn't know you had the arena league uh, uh, affiliation. Uh, uh, I got to tell you, one of my earlier jobs, Prime Sports back home, uh, we covered the Arena League. There was a team called the Anaheim Piranhas. And really my first time of doing sideline work to where you're actually in the hockey box, which is the football sideline for Arena yeah. League. And uh, their head coach was Babe Perilli, who you need to go YouTube him and get his story about the New York Jets and how famous he was. The players didn't know who he was. Again, Um it's, it's pre-internet, so it wasn't like you can click on. But my Arena League experience for two years, I wouldn't trade that for anything. And as you look back on it now, yeah, it was pretty low budget, but you couldn't have told me that then. No, exactly. Like the Cincinnati Rockers were the team I worked for. The guy we hired is a guy named Joe Herring. He was a defensive coordinator of the NFL, and he was with the New York, New Jersey Generals and USFL. And his claim to fame was he punched out the commissioner on the 50-yard line during an arena football game. And his favorite thing to do was break out the video and show you that he really did. <laughs> that's, yeah. Now that's an arena league story. Yeah. Exactly. So let's get to let's get to your 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 chip's assistant. Chip got you, and you guys got a great relationship. The great Phil Jackson is is the coach of the of the Bulls. Um there's this crazy rebounding phenom. Dennis Rodman, who definitely marches to the beat of his own drummer. Tell me how Phil kind of assigned you 
to the worm and you knew you had no idea this was happening. No. And it, it, the, the funny thing is the first time I actually met Dennis was when I was working the visiting locker room at the old stadium. I don't know if you've ever been there. You had to walk down a staircase through the floor into the basement. That's where the locker rooms were for both teams. Mm-hmm. And it was just a crappy little hockey locker room. I mean, mm-hmm. tiny. And uh, one of the jobs is it, this is not the like safest neighborhood so much so that we padlocked the locker room doors when we went to go play the game. And one kid, one of us was charged with just like at the old school bathroom lockers or bathrooms at a gas station. He had a key with a stick on it. And if it was right before halftime, like two minutes before you would run ahead of the team and run down the stairs and unlock the padlock on the door. Well, Dennis Rodman gets in a fight with Stacey King, headbutts him, throws all the computer stuff off the table and he gets ejected. All the other ball boys look at me. I'm like the oldest kid because I'm like 20 year old graduate of college, and they're like, "You're going to let him in?" And I'm like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> I run down ahead of him. I'm thinking this is he's going to destroy the place. I unlock the door. I let him in. It was like it was a WWF show. He's cool as a cucumber. Sits down. Says, "Hey, is there you know anywhere I can get something to eat?" I run down to the press room. I grab him a plate of food. He puts on his pajama pants like normal, and then we just start talking about Pearl Jam. So fast forward like three years later when he joins the Bulls, we kind of already had met and we kind of joked about that story. He didn't remember it, but I did, of course. And, you know, Dennis is a really quiet guy. People think he's like loud and obnoxious. He actually doesn't almost talk to anybody. He just kind of walks around and does his own thing at the training facility. And we just kind of hit it off. And out of the blue one day, um, and this is how Walling the Worm started, I got told that I was going with Dennis Rodman um, on a – I think it was about a 15, 16 day rehab assignment. Uh, the bulls were leaving on a trip. Uh, it was cold. It was like March and he was going to go and do his rehab out in LA and they wanted me to go and monitor it. But, and this is once again, before cell phones. So yeah. I was more like a homing device than right. a medical professional at the time. You know, I was going to do his rehab, but I don't think they were as concerned about that as just knowing where he was. So, right. Right. And that's exactly how that happened. Phil wrote it Phil, in his book, uh, 11 Rings. There's a whole chapter about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son, who's yes. a great actor and an incredible producer. They do a lot of documentaries, him and Sean Stewart, out of their company called The Company. Mm-hmm. The company name, actually. And they contacted me out of the blue. And they said, we read this chapter. ESPN has already had us do a couple 30 for 30s. They said, do we have an idea for another one? And they said, we have this story about this kid from Chicago that had to go live with Dennis Rodman. Is that you? And I was like, at first I thought it was my friend screwing around. So I hung up on the first time. (laughs) Then they called back and we started talking. I started telling the story like this and they were just in love. They're like, we have to do this. And they did a fantastic job. We actually got invited to Tribeca. We were one of like five ESPN 30 for 30s like honored at Tribeca. Wow, that's awesome, man. And look, here's the thing, man. You look, and, and again, uh, uh, most of the folks listening to this are listening to audio only. They will, we, we're our good folks at the Basketball Podcast Network. They'll find small clips to visually put it out there. But for those who don't know, so Wally looks like one of the characters from Sons of Anarchy. And it's not fucking Jack, so don't get your head all big or anything. But I got to <laughs> tell you this, is that you've been in a movie that's directed by, by Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son, man. So that's beyond the athletics cool of everything that that's happened. So you and Dennis already have the Pearl Jam connection before he gets there. Um, 
everything that's so phenomenal that that that's in the the, the amazing adventures of Wally and the Worm in the Thirty for Thirty are our next level. Tell me about Dennis going to a Pearl Jam concert, and you know the one I'm talking about where they're opening up for somebody, and uh, how that came about. That um, it's one of my favorite stories. I don't tell it a lot because it is one of my favorite little nuggets. Um, yeah, it was the last dance year, 97, 98, and we're heading, it's in November. I actually went back, Andre, when we talked about this the other day and just looked up the set list and the dates just so I could kind of put my memory back together. And so it was November, uh, 19th. We were, that's the Pearl Jam was doing a four night stint in Oakland Coliseum opening for the Rolling Stones for four nights. This was the fourth night on the 19th. The Bulls were playing the Phoenix Suns on the 20th. Um, I wasn't that aware, you know, that this, I knew they were out there, but I, I had no clue as to what was going on when the planes flying from Chicago to Phoenix to start this 10 day road trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, I always sat next to Dennis on the plane. We had our own plane at the time. It wasn't the ones that me and you flew on. Right. We would watch movies and that. And I got called up to Phil's pod and they had like a private booth for the coaches, like a room. Mm-hmm. And I get in there and he says, Dennis is going to see Pearl Jam up in Oakland tonight. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. He's like, and you're going with them. And the, the funny thing about this is Chip had just got done talking with Phil about maybe separating me from being Dennis's hall monitor. And <laughs> let's focus a little more on sports medicine. And Phil just looked at Chip and then looked at me and said, so the plane will leave probably a little bit after we get back and without even skipping a beat as to, no, you're not getting away from Dennis. This is, this is now your albatross or I loved it. It was like getting the chain on the sidelines. Right, so, right, you know, right. Turn over well, chain. I said, okay, sounds good. And Chip just looked at me and said, well, that went well. And we landed in Phoenix. We checked into the hotel, some golf resort. I don't remember. Camelback, Rich, mm-hmm. one of those. Mm-hmm. Michael and those guys took off in golf carts to go start golfing. We went, put our bags in our room, met back at the uh, lobby of the resort. Car picked us up, took us to a private jet. Uh, it was myself, Dennis, uh, George Tranafello, our security guard. And I think Tom Smithberg at the time was the uh, assistant PR guy for the Bulls. He went with us as well. And Bill Smith, the team's photographer, jumped on a plane, landed in Oakland, pulled right up backstage at the Coliseum. They ushered us right into Pearl Jam's green room. And there we are hanging out with Uh, Eddie Vedder, Jeff Stone, Mike McCready. And, you know, they were just awesome. They're they're huge fans of Dennis, obviously, and huge fans of basketball. So they're always been great. And we've been backstage with them and just super to, to the point, they're such good humans that I'm still friends with them today and I have nothing to do with Dennis Rodman. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, that's how great, especially Eddie and Jeff are to me, you know, mm-hmm. reach out all the time. And they we walk up on stage while they open for the Stones, looking out at the entire Coliseum. We're standing behind their amps, you know, with Dennis, and we watch them just rock. You know, they wow. do the whole set. They play, like, for an hour or so. And, you know, it was their last night there, so they really let it hang out. The weather was good. Mm-hmm. We go backstage. We're getting, you know, we're hanging out with them. And then we had seats out in the crowd to watch the Stones. And yes, we're sir. like, this is amazing. So I, I knew that Eddie was going to play a song. And, it, and I had to go look up which song it was. But he was going to play a song with them. So I knew we were going to stay at least till that happened. And it mm-hmm. ended up being uh, Waiting on a Friend. 
And then I think somewhere in the set list, it broke into she's a rainbow and, uh, or, or something as slow as that. And Dennis was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> wait, so so time go. No, wait, type. let me stop you. So first of all, I paid my rent a little bit DJing and around music and stuff. Again, not at the level of what we're talking about here. But one of the first things in DJ school was like, hey, man, be careful with the tempo. Be careful how you slow things down or whatever. Of course, that's me playing at a club in Southern California. The fucking Stones could play uh, the E major scale for 10 minutes and you're going to go like, this is pretty cool. But you're telling me that after everything that's happening, the tempo goes down and the worm is like, oh, shit. All right, let's get out of here. Yeah. And, and But here's why. I didn't understand his ulterior motive. Okay, so he's like, let's get out of here. So we kind of wander our way back to where we came in through backstage, say goodbye to the boys, get in our car. And part of me is like, okay, we're, we're missing probably half the show. Right. Well, at the same time, Phil was like, you know, you guys have to be back. We have a game tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So now I'm like, we're in Oakland. We're heading right to the airport. We're going to be back in Phoenix. It's not a late night city. We're going to be well ahead of schedule. And now I did my job. This is fantastic. We get on a plane. Now, remember, this is 1997. This isn't, you know, this is way before 9-11. With people don't understand how travel was back then. Back then, private jets, you know, it was like picking up an Uber for these guys. Right, right. We get in. We take off. We start flying. And we're having some beers, having a good time, talking about the show, how great everybody was. Dennis gets up and, you know, has to crouch past us all and knocks on the cabin door of the cockpit. Pilot opens the door. Yes, Mr. Rodman. Dennis goes, you know what? Land in Vegas. <laughs> and he says, okay. We sit down. The plane kind of swoops over. And instead of going back home like I thought we would, the plane lands right in Vegas. Oh, no. It's the tarmac. He already had called ahead. Three limos waiting for us. Take us on an entire excursion of the Las Vegas Strip. You know, the strip clubs, the Hard Rock, the uh, Mandalay, all the top casinos, playing craps, shooting dice, picking up girls. And we stayed there till the sun came up, took off, landed, went to our rooms, grabbed our gear for practice, had never gone to bed. I got on the bus, Phil sitting in his front seat and said, how was it? I said, the concert was awesome. And he said, when did you get home? And I looked at my watch and I said, 35 minutes ago. He said, what? I said, well, we did a little stop in Vegas. Now Scotty and Michael hear that and they're just PO'd from the back of the plane. Dennis is like, you wanted to play golf. I went to Vegas. You could have gone to Vegas. Don't blame me. (laughs) Yep. Side trip to Vegas. That's so every, and again, you're part of this life, uh, 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 Wally, but for the worm, for all these guys, basically it's Tuesday. Yeah. You know? Or it's Wednesday. You know, this is just, hey, what are we going to do today? And again, the beauty of not to pass over the 30 for 30. And again, everybody, if you haven't seen it, they're going to go ahead and, and, and look at it. But it's like Roadrunner and Coyote. Every morning, no, Wally's not getting Dennis up. Wally's resting from the previous night, and Dennis is there four feet from your face. Wake up, dude. What, what's the thing? Uh, sleep when you're dead. You're dead. He'd lean over me and just say, get up, cuz. You sleep when you're dead. And it's on it. He's a professional. Me trying to keep up with him, no different if I was training, you know, rebounding drills with him. He, he's the master at running all night. And to be honest, you know, I'll give up the second half of that Stones concert for the whole trip to Vegas because it was – 
he, he knew how to pack it in. You know, we're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. So we're going to hit the stones. We're going to hit Pearl Jam. We're going to get back on the plane. We're going to hit Vegas. And then we're going to go to Phoenix. And I'm going to out-rebound them by 20 rebounds. Wow, man. One of the other things you kind of learn from the 30 for 30, and, and, and again, I need everybody to understand, we're putting this in the mind of pre-internet and – you know, the, the the cell phone explosion as far as selfies and all that hasn't happened. But one of the beautiful things to me is the picture part of, of Dennis. And I bring that up because I used to live, when I lived in New York for seven years, there was a CVS in the lobby of, of the building that I was in. And they had the throwaway camera. And so I'm saying all this because the throwaway camera was part of Dennis Rotman's life. And again, I'm sure he could have had a, you know, a, a $20,000, whatever camera, but it was convenient. It's part of, of, of Wally's story in the 30 for 30. And I bring that up now because here's my one Chicago story that I know of. Okay. And I didn't get it from Wally and it's not like some groundbreaking thing or whatever, but you need to understand how big uh, magazines are then, you know, because we're not looking on and, you know, pre-internet, how big Carmen Electra was. So with the training area, the training table being the athlete's office and where everything really, really happens. And as guys are looking at magazines or whatever, uh, somebody shows a picture of uh, Carmen Electra. And they're remarking to how beautiful this woman is. And uh, Dennis just kind of nonchalantly goes, she's at the house. And evidently, Michael and Scott, yeah, right, bullshit. I'll take a picture. And he comes back with a picture the next day ever in the house? I Actually, you, you want to hear the, the, the true story? Yes, I want the true story. So, so, yeah, the disposable camera thing, that was Dennis's favorite thing. If you wanted a picture with Dennis, you had to take a picture with me. That was – so I have pictures. I have pictures with Jay Leno, Rodney Dangerfield. You have you know. a Rodney Dangerfield. Come on, man. Rodney took the picture with you because yeah. – Dennis told him to because he we were on the Jay Leno show and he brought Rodney into the to the green room to meet him and he was like yeah okay you know hey you know Dennis is like you don't know who Wally Blazes he's like no should I hey you know so the this Carmen Electra is it's one better than that so when when we are home in Deerfield Illinois where the Birdo Center where the Bulls practiced Dennis when he took his contract with the Bulls, they had him just buy like a modest, tiny bungalow house within a mile of the practice facility, just because they knew it would be less chance of him running into traffic. You know, he could get there very easily. Well, the rule was 10 a.m. You had to be dressed at center court around the circle, ready to go. And that's when Phil started practice. So by nine, if Dennis wasn't wandering around the hall somewhere, Michael would say, go get your boy. And I would just drive over to the house and nine times out of 10, his truck might be parked in the driveway on the front lawn. The keys could still be in the front door. So I would just go knock on the door or the door was open still with the keys in it. I would just walk in, get him. You know, he he might be sleeping. He might be up. He might be having breakfast and just say, come on, man, we got to go. We got practice. Well, on this particular day, Keys were still in the front door. Trucks kind of sideways on the lawn. I um, walk in and there's Dennis laying on the living room floor on a king size mattress. He had a giant king size mattress on the living room floor with a 
one of those big giant projection TVs they had in the nineties. You know what I'm talking about? They weigh about 800 pounds and laying next to him is this incredibly gorgeous woman. And I'm like, okay. So I kind of kicked the mattress. He gets up. We're in this little galley kitchen. He's looking for bowls and plates. He's going to make a bowl of cereal. And I'm like, who's that? And he's like, hold on a second. He reaches into a cupboard and pulls out the Playboy edition of Carmen Electra in the cupboard. And I said, shut the hell up. I turn, I look around the corner of the kitchen into the living room. And there she is laying there. The sheets are basically just covering her lower half. She's topless and like stretching out like you would see like it was a movie scene. And she's just like, hi, not even phased. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, let's go. So we go over to the practice facility. Michael's in there getting um, some treatment and he's just sitting on a table and he goes, is your boy here? I said, yeah, he's getting dressed. He goes, well, where was he? I go, well, he was at home and he was like, what was he doing? I said, he was doing this. And I throw the playboy to Michael and he looks and I said, that's who's sleeping on his living room floor right now. Dennis walked by right at that second. And Michael's like, are you kidding me? And Dennis just looked and goes, ask Wally. And Michael, just, as Michael could only do, said, I'm picking you up for practice tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You see, the true story is always the best version. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that was uh, an amazing day. Oh, my goodness. Damn, Wally. So you bring all of that experience here to Atlanta. All right. But still, when you come to Atlanta, you're the head guy. Did you feel any extra pressure? Did you how were you able to stay into your how were you able to be yourself? Yeah, you know, um, I, I felt pressure because what I wanted to do is live up to the tradition. You know, Chip had set in Chicago and then together I thought we put together a really good program, you know, that we had learned from each other and, you know, him being at Loyola Marymount, him being with the U S ski team, my time at, you know, Syracuse and in arena football, I, I thought we really had a good program. So I, I wanted to build upon that just like any young assistant coach that gets to be a head coach. They want to keep their roots, but they also kind of want to put their own stamp on things. So, you know, I, I, I was, I was ready for it. You know, I, I think three years earlier, um, I wasn't. And even though there had been jobs that had opened and, you know, I got, a cursory interview because of my association with the bulls, but it was the right time. And yeah, I, I was excited, a little nervous because now there's no one above me when a coach is asking why that player is not ready or the GM or a trades made and something goes through. So, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was, it was a good time. You know, it, it was a lot of hours. I, you know, I, I basically just locked myself in the training room when I got the job, you know, basically in August until the season started just, getting things set the way I wanted to. I got to tell you from my perspective, and, and again, from, from a media standpoint and a couple of different ways to look at this where when uh, I worked at uh, uh, ESPN or C CNN sports, I'm obviously my, my, my responsibility is looking for stories or pursuing a particular story. And then as the media landscape has changed and I've been able to a work for a league for a number of years or to work with a television partner of a team, then that changes the perspective for me because you're in partnership with the team. So you still want to tell great stories. You don't want to lie to people. To me, uh, uh, you have your integrity of, of that, but yeah. it just changes how things is. But the one thing I got to tell you, I, I really respected about you from the very beginning. Look, uh, 
officially, let's say during a game or somebody's hurt or somebody's injured, uh, you have to be the official word. Hey, uh, this person may come back, this, that, or whatever. So I understand that. But as we travel together, and as you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a guy about food and about an okay drink. And so you're like, I am too. Here's, here's, here's my deal. Here's how I work. Um, no basketball questions. You know, we go, that's if, if, if we're going to eat together, if we're going to have a drink together, if we're going to roll together. Uh, and matter of fact, I have that with my, no basketball. We go to eat, to do whatever. And just for me, that wasn't a problem and always respected that part. Did you learn that from somebody? Yeah, you know, I think it, you kind of get taught, you know, especially back in the day when the, the players, as the athletic trainer, as the assistant trainer, the players always kind of took care of you. They, they're the ones that would take you out to dinner, mm-hmm. buy drinks, mm-hmm. you know, just because they knew you didn't make a lot of money and they just appreciate it. It was a sign of appreciation. And, you know, the, the number one thing was we're just not going to talk shop. You know, you're, we're not going to sit here and gossip and talk about playing time, you know, because it's not like I was going to dinner with Michael, you know. I'm, right, right. You know, I mean, I'm dinner with Luke Longley, Steve Kerr, Judd Bushler, you know, right. it's like right. Tony Kukoc. <laughs> so, yeah, when I say talk shop, it's we're not talking current shop, but we're going to talk about Tony playing on the Yugoslavian team. You know, we're going to talk about Steve and Judd at Arizona with Sean Elliott, you know, St. John's and Bill Wayne, stuff that you're just eating us up as, you know, right. just a, a fan and a person that respects great talent. These guys worked hard to get where they were. Yes, sir. But you, you learn that, and it's kind of passed down. The same thing. If we and you were going to go to dinner with Steve Holman and have drinks, mm-hmm. we're not going to talk shop. We may talk about some current things, like when, you know, oh, we decided to stay over in Sacramento instead of going to Portland and, you know, all argue about why we're doing that because there's better restaurants in Portland, you know. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, right, 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 right. there's a matter of the travel, you know, party. But, yeah, and – you got to respect the media. You know, the late, great Seku, he would, you know, we'd all have lunch yes. or dinner together and, yes. you know, Seku would call us on the phone and it wasn't for inside scoops. It might be, yeah, yourself, you know, Andre, the local guys. Yeah. I'm going to give them more info than I'm going to give, mm-hmm. you know, the ESPN guy covering, Absolutely. you know, just because we have a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. Well, for the folks uh, again, who are listening to this, only I want you to know that uh, over Wally's left shoulder is a tremendous Al Horford jersey, and uh, over his right shoulder is a Josh Smith jersey. So the Atlanta natives move, and and uh, the pride of uh, uh, Punta Cana, the Dominican Republic. And oh, look at that thing going there. Okay, yep, and, and and you got a few, you got a few more there going there, right? I see. Yeah, Michael. I got, I got a Michael Jordan, and I got Joe Johnson All Star jersey. Nice, nice. And then uh, I got the Hanson Brothers uh, Chiefs jersey from Slapshot. Because you know me, I'm a big hockey guy. So yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Okay, so we're gonna finish this up with a with a with a with a hockey story. Okay. And the hockey story we're gonna finish this up with is uh, so I I laid down how we kind of hung out a little bit. Hawks are in Philadelphia, and uh, Wally ends up with an extra ticket for a lightning flyers game. And I got to tell you folks that um, for this year, like the fly, the flyers were horrible and the lightning were phenomenal. And the third person that's going with this would be the assistant trainer at the time, Scotty Parker, who happens to be the Hawks head trainer now and is just the salt of the earth just a good wonderful human being scotty's never been to a hockey game 
And Scotty came to the Hawks having worked for several years on the staff of the Seattle Seahawks. So it isn't like he isn't around athletics, right? He just never been to a hockey game. So I find this astounding because I've always been well aware of whether I covered the LA Kings as one of the few black faces there in the media thing, or being from San Diego, I, you know, we had a, a minor league team. We had San Diego goals. So I've been very aware of asking what I thought were smart questions and all that, but we're trying to help Scotty out with what, what's going to happen for hockey, right? We're, hey, so it's going to be this, it's going to be this, it's going to be this and that. So we prepped them for it. Am I explaining that pretty good as, as far as? as yeah, and it's even more disappointing because Scotty's from Minnesota. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's like being from San Diego and not knowing anything about surfing or, you know, getting sunburned. You know, I, it was – it, it was it was it was just soul crushing to me to be honest with you you know it, 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 it between hiring Scotty and hiring Zach I, I'm a little more pleased with Zach. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're there and I'm a uh, I'm more of a brown liquor drinker although because Wally's here today I am drinking tequila I've been sipping a little bit so. Um, uh, again, audio only. You don't know, but I got a, a, a nice bottle of uh, uh, Frito Kahlo and Yeho here. So I'm I'm doing sips of that in between uh, me running my mouth and when Wally's talking and stuff. You can't can't see it, but you know here I'm gonna since we're getting towards the end, I'm gonna toast you and take a little sip here, Wally. And cheers to you. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, that's some good stuff. So anyway, but we're at a hockey game, so you got to drink beer. So I'm drinking beers, and it may be hard for you to believe, but I actually might get even a little more talkative after a few beers in me. And we're doing our pregame and stuff. Well, it just so happens that the driver's license that young Mr. Parker is using, and and he's a clean-cut guy, but the driver's license that he had, which is actually from Wisconsin, I couldn't figure that out since he's from Minnesota and had worked in Seattle, he looks like the fucking Unabomber. So the lady in the arena looks at it, goes like, I'm going to have to have my supervisor look at this because I don't know. And we're like, that is true. And we're like, very interesting. Okay. So Wally gets his drinks. Andre gets his drinks. We're down there. About 10 minutes goes by and Scotty's still and I, Wally, do I need to go? And you say, I'm you, Scotty's a grown man, Andre. He'll get it worked out eventually some kind of way. And it just so happened that they go to a second supervisor, and the second supervisor was an ex-FBI guy that uh, was everything Joe Friday was on Dragnet. There was no fun and games to this guy, and they're looking at this thing, and I, Wally, I think they thought he was the Unabomber. <laughs> he sure looked like it in that photo. The photo definitely does. So now that I'm good and oiled up a little bit, um, I decide, hey, this would be a great thing to video, right? So I pull out my camera. I sneak up behind as Scotty's trying to explain to the guy that he's not the Unabomber guy. And the guy out the corner of his ex-FBI sees me with the camera. like, you don't fucking videotape me. Take that goddamn camera down. Take it down. Take it down. (laughs) And I was like, holy moly. So I slowly take it down. But I think that, you know, my ability to be funny while drunk is going to be better than your ability to be upset of us for us going there. And at the meantime, while you just kind of turn around and look, it's like, can I, I can't take anybody to the game with me. <laughs> and we're in Philly. I'm worried about the fans. And I got you two yokels. <laughs> These are people that throw snowballs at Santa Claus and you guys are starting the biggest problem. <laughs> so we finally get everything worked out. I shake the FBI guy's hand. We get down there, we're watching the game and this fantastic Tampa squad starts losing to Philadelphia in the first period, like five to nothing. And I just get this look from Scott. He's like, 
Oh, you and Wally were just bullshitting me about everything you told me about hockey. <laughs> I didn't think we saw any fights though. Besides that, that was that was that was the that was about the only only one there at all. You know. Yeah. So Wally, um, you you give your advice now to the youngsters, but because youngsters can't necessarily do it the way we do it. Um, what's your, what is your, what is your biggest advice? And when I say that, it's like, it's, it's hard for you to say, Hey, I would love to go and, and, and hang out at a place for, you know, uh, two years or whatever, but the security, I can't do all of that. Yeah. And you know, just with the, the, the pluses and minuses are one, you got to put the work in, you know, you, you, if this is what you want to do, you, you're not just going to go to Auburn, join their athletic training program you're gonna to have to interview for it because it, there are it, it's it's harder now and you're yeah. gonna have to you're gonna to have to work uh outdoor track and field tournament in the cold and rain mm-hmm. you know for two years straight and not even touch the sidelines of the football stadium mm-hmm. you know and then maybe by the time you're a senior you might get to do that i mean that's all the little work like that and you're gonna to learn to make a million ice bags and how to restock tape and study and never touch an athlete and then after that, you're going to have to go get an internship, maybe working at a clinic, and you're going to rehab my mom's shoulder. And mm-hmm. you're still going to have to. And if, after all that, you still want to do it. The good thing is, is that pro sports staffs have tremendously increased. I, mm-hmm. I, I know from just leaving the Hawks, it was me and Pete Radulovic, right. you know, the, my great assistant. And then we got to add a, a Scotty Parker mm-hmm. by like my last two years. So there were actually three of us. Now I, I, I went to a Hawks game last year with my daughter for her birthday and, you know, we had courtside seats from the Garens. They hooked us up and the amount of staff on the bench and behind the bench, it's, you can't, you know, shake a stick without hitting a trainer or a string coach. So mm-hmm. there is more opportunity now out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good you know, so it's, you're just going to, and the internships are offered. It's just a matter of grinding it out and, you know, proving your worth and, and getting into it. And especially um, fantastic to see a lot of opportunity for the female sports medicine side of it. You know, Chelsea's done a fantastic job mm-hmm. uh, handling, taking over the uh, Atlanta Hawks sports medicine department. I, I couldn't be happier as an alumni of being the director of sports medicine there prior, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's so many other fantastic young um, females that are out there now in, in pro sports. And so I think if you're a female athletic trainer, the time is right actually to really, you know, shoot for the stars because they, yeah, the, these GMs now have opened their minds. The training rooms are much uh, more conducive to uh, having a coexistence, you know, so there's not some kind of, you know, back then it was just one room and guys walk around naked. So I think there used to be some kind of stigmatism, right? right. You know, having a female in the training room was going to make it awkward. It's not like that anymore. Not you know, I, I think, you know, I, some of the best professionals I've worked with in my career have been the female athletic trainers. And I just want to, promote them even going further because out of the 30 jobs in the NBA, I think there's only one head athletic trainer right now. That's a female. Wow. Wow. Well, Wally, man, it's definitely an honor to have you here on, on a toast to the A-Town. And, and again, you are so, so everything that you did 
in that locker room and everything you set up in that locker room. And that still lives on. You're a big part of that. We all uh, kind of claim you, but you do belong to the Midwest. Uh, and, and again, I would uh, strongly advise for those of you that haven't uh, to make sure you check out that 30 for 30, the amazing adventure of Wally and the worm. And uh, this won't be your last time here on this podcast, brother, you know, I got nothing but love for you. Thanks for spending some time with us here today, man. Same thing, Andre. I, I love being here. I'm happy to come on anytime. We can talk about any topic. As you know, I've had a uh, very fulfilled life at my young 50 years. So uh, it's Friday. Uh, it's definitely four o'clock here, but five o'clock somewhere. So I'm going to have a couple of toasts and drinks for you as well. And uh, thank you very much. And to all the Atlanta Hawks fans, love you guys. It was a pleasure working um, supporting your team for 15 years. And like I said, that those Hawk season ticket holders, and you know who you are that sat around the, our home bench. They, I, I miss you guys. It was just fantastic. You know, it was like a little family we had down there. Awesome stuff there, brother. And uh, again, thank you very much, Ollie. And I'm going to talk to you soon. Take care, buddy. All right, folks. Again, once again, my guests, I really don't need to add anything to what was said there, but uh, uh, Wally Blaze there, just the next level of a human being. And uh, uh, beyond the fact that he's lived a great life, uh, uh, just a great person, man, and, and great at his uh, profession. So I thank all of you for joining us here on this edition of A Toast to the A-Town presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Andre Aldridge. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, make sure to hit that subscribe button and I will see you next time. <laughs>